This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The real problem with con man George Santos, sports as propaganda's biggest mouthpiece, and we asked chat GTP or whatever it's called some questions to see just how biased it is. This is a propaganda report. I'm Brad Bingley. All right, so this George Santos guy continues to be in the news, and I do have a few thoughts on the situation, so we'll start there today. Santos, as I'm sure you know at this point, is the 34-year-old freshman congressman from New York who basically just lied about his entire background. You know, his family, his education, his jobs, his volleyball stardom, even had a couple of fake names that he used to go by. whole lot of stuff. Also says he's gay, but he was also married to a woman for like seven years. But that actually does happen sometimes. And if I had to guess, because he does seem to be gay, he was probably married to that woman so that he could con her out of his money. Because that's what this guy is. He's not just a pathological liar. He's a con artist. And since no one could apparently figure this out until after he was already elected, well, it looks like we're kind of stuck with him until 2024. That's not to say that some members of Congress don't want him gone. They do, especially Democrats, but there is no voter recall when it comes to members of Congress, and Congress could expel him if the House Ethics Committee finds that he broke some laws and recommends expulsion, but He'd only be removed in that case if two-thirds of the House voted to support removal, which isn't likely to happen. So the only other way to get him out of there is if he resigns, which many are calling for him to do. But I got news for Congress. This guy ain't going anywhere. Why would he? I mean, think about it. Who's going to hire him in the private sector right now? No one. Not for a little while, anyway. What con artists typically do, those that are not public figures, is once they're outed in the little communities that they've been conning for however long, is they just leave and go find a bunch of people who don't know them and start their whole racket all over again. It's not going to be so easy for this guy to do that now that he's kind of a public figure. I mean, he would do that. He'd probably change his name, maybe go to another country or something. But why would he make it difficult for himself when he is already in the perfect situation for a guy like him, he's going to be making $174,000 a year for the next two years at a job that he can't be fired from, despite the fact that everyone he works with and everyone who hired him, the voters, all know that he's a pathologically lying con artist. And it's also a job that happens to give him the attention and fame that he's always ever wanted. He also doesn't actually have to do anything at this job. And this is a dream come true for this guy, con artist in the private sector. I mean, they're constantly worried about being outed, getting caught, because I'll have to go start over again. This guy, what a relief. Everybody already knows, and nobody can remove him. I bet all the other members of Congress are jealous of this guy, because they got to continue to keep up the facade. He can just be free. I'd even argue... That because everyone knows that he's a con artist already, that it makes it more likely, if he's smart, that 
he would actually try to fulfill the promises that he made on the campaign trail when he was conning people to get into office so that he doesn't lose this dream situation that he has. Because he's not going to get a better situation than this. Although I highly doubt he's going to really do anything. Con artists don't just lie. They like lie and they commit to lying. Like they commit really hard. And when you encounter one for the first time, on a regular basis, you have to interact with them. It changes the way that you view the world, especially if you realize that this person is a con artist before everybody else who knows them that you also know realizes it. And you can see that person conning people. But if you go out them, you're the dick because they're very good at garnering sympathy and playing the victim. There's a whole psychology to these people and the way they do it is pretty fascinating. But it really does. It changes the way you view people and the skepticism that you have. It's like there's a before you've dealt with con artists and then there's an after. And that's why politicians are able to get away with so much. And I think a lesson here is that this guy isn't an outlier in Washington. What he is among his peers up there is an amateur. He's a con artist among con artists, except he's just not as skilled as they are at it. Let me show you something here to illustrate that this type of blatant, obnoxious, obvious lying that doesn't get called out in the moment is really not that uncommon among these people in political circles in Washington, D.C., in that world. Here's an interview with Michael Moore. This is from 2018. And Michael Moore is a pathological liar. Yet he's very powerful and influential in the political world and a very wealthy filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, filled with propaganda, most of his documentaries. And in this interview, he's talking to the MSNBC host about how Republicans try and win elections when they know it's rigged because of their, their voter laws and stuff like that. And he gives an example of how moral he is and ethical he is and how he would never, ever try and win anything by cheating. Right, but what, what, what I say to Republicans is, is why... Well, how do you feel when you win a game and you know that you won it because... It was rigged. It was rigged, or the, the table shifted, or you only had to run the ball back 80 yards instead of 100 yards. How do you feel about that? I mean, do you feel like you're the winner? I wouldn't feel good about it. Yeah, You know, I... I, uh, I <laughs> when I was in uh, junior high school, I was playing basketball, and um, I was over in the far corner, and I did a hook shot in the far corner where the two out-of-bounds yeah. lines meet. And I saw my foot go out of bounds, and I made it went over my head, and I made a swish in the basket. And and I the the refs didn't see it, and I basically I had to, I said to the ref I, I stepped out of bounds, and the coach was like, "What are you doing? <laughs> like it wasn't a fair basket. How would I feel if we won? And it was because of that basket, which I know wasn't right because I'd stepped out of bounds. I'm not sure everybody in the country is burdened with that. Well, aren't we, reality. aren't we all raised that way to know what's right and wrong? Well, it's so basic. You... So he did a hooker over there in the far corner as he was falling out of bounds, bouncing on one leg with his back to the basket, apparently. Not looking at the goal, but looking down at the ground to see that his foot went out of bounds. Yet he made nothing but net shot. You see this court here on the screen, and there's a dog on the court, which is also strange. 
You see my finger where I'm pointing at? That corner baseline right there is where he's saying this happened, either that one or the other one. And when you shoot it from over there, you're actually behind the goal a little bit. So, you, so you're arc, arcing the ball from behind the goal at this angle that he's talking about. Very difficult angle, especially when you're balancing on one leg, falling out of bounds, and you're not even looking at the goal, and you're shooting a hook shot. And despite making history's most improbable basket, nothing but net, he's so moral and so ethical that he, he told the referee, which by the way, the referee whose only job, and there's multiple referees to do this, their only job is to watch the players. One of them's job was to focus specifically on the player with the ball to make sure the player didn't go out of bounds when they shot. So he not only was able to hit that one-legged, fadeaway, blind hook shot from the worst angle on the court, he was also able to do the referee's job for him. And he tells the referee, I, it was, I was out of bounds. Take the basket away. It's not fair. That, that is how moral he is. You don't get to go tell the referee that either. You, you could tell the referee that, and the referee, it, 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 I don't know, back then, I don't know if they had the replay monitors back then. He's not just going to change it because the kid says it. Secondly or thirdly or whatever, anybody who is shooting fadeaway hook shots on one leg blind is going to be sitting on the bench. And if they are in the game, nobody's passing the ball to them. In fact, they're not even on the team because that's the stupidest thing anybody who's ever played basketball has heard, especially coming from Michael Moore. Now, if Michael Jordan, if Wilt Chamberlain, Steph Curry, if they said that, I still wouldn't believe it. I would still think they were full of it unless I saw video of them doing it. Now, yeah, people can make hook shots. Michael Moore didn't do what he just described. It's very obvious, especially when he displayed zero knowledge of football too, saying, where do you think you got to go the ball at? 100 yards? You go 80? Yeah, you do only go 80 because... Usually the ball starts at the 20 or 25. Nobody has starts at the zero yard line every single time. He's just telling, uh, making up a blatant lie, maybe he saw in a movie or something, to demonstrate how moral and ethical he is. I mean, this is no different to me than what this Santos guy does. And they welcome Michael Moore onto MSNBC on a regular basis. And, and he makes a lot of money off of telling lies, which Santos could probably... See if uh, Michael Moore wants to be his mentor. You know? Because nobody's questioned Michael Moore on this three-point shot, yet everybody's questioning whether or not Santos could be a star volleyball player at this college he never went to. I think there's possibly a mentor-protege relationship that could be in the workings there. And look, some of the stuff he does, it's going to be easy to make fun of him, and people are going to laugh at him a lot. And that's all, that's all good. But this guy, make no mistake about it, is a piece of trash. One of the many cons that he ran is he once set up a GoFundMe on the premise of raising $3,000 to pay for what would have been a life-saving surgery for a Navy veteran's dog. Now, this Navy vet, when he tells the story, says that when he came back from, I can't remember where he said he was, that he didn't want to live anymore, and he rescued this dog, and the dog made him want to live again. And the dog got sick. And he was connected to Santos through a vet. The 
the vet who took care of his dog. And Santos, I keep wanting to say DeSantis, but Santos, sets up this GoFundMe. They meet the mark, raise the $3,000. The guy's excited that his dog is going to get to have the life-saving surgery. And then Santos kept the money. Never gave it to him. He lost his dog. Santos is a piece of trash. Okay, so I talk a lot about the channels of propaganda on this show, all the different platforms and avenues used by the powers that be to deliver their propaganda messages to us. And the world of sports has always been one of those bigger opportunities for them to reach the masses with their messages. And right now, at least in the eyes of these elitist at Davos, sports as a vehicle for propaganda is more powerful now than it ever has been before. This is the CEO of Nielsen from Nielsen Ratings, David Kenny, I believe is his last name. Here's a clip. I, I think sport is the most important um, media format today, and it's what people are counting on. So if I, if I give an example, in the United States, uh, in 2022, 93 of the top 100 programs of the year were sport. Um, and 80-some uh, of those were the NFL, three were World Cup games, one was the Kentucky Derby. Um, and so, uh, and it's growing. And I would say the value of sport is increasing much faster than the value of media overall. The reason for that is the, the fragmentation of entertainment. So as more and more consumption is viewed on demand on a streaming platform, and streaming is now bigger than cable in most markets, um, that means that you don't all watch the same program. There isn't as much uh, cultural connectiveness in uh, uh, in entertainment. News, live breaking news will get a good audience when it's really interesting, but, but that's also become more fragmented and more opinion-based. So if you really want to unite society, if you really want to get the right and the left to do something together, if you really want to build a brand that uh, covers the population, you really only have one option, which is sport. Sport is really the kingmaker of media is the, is the short answer for these reasons. It's the one media format that unites people in mass. All right, so if you want to unite society or divide them, I would argue, because we all remember the really stupid Colin Kaepernick take a knee protest, which he totally didn't do on his own. He had a girlfriend that was a major activist who I think became his handler, and then somebody else took a knee and they encouraged him to do it, and he became the symbol of something that other people put in motion. So obviously it can divide also. But I had not heard it put as sport as the kingmaker of the media before. That I found that to be interesting that they perceive it that way. And it's like a reminder, you know, for me anyway, to really pay attention to those things that happen and the messages that are being delivered at these major sporting events. Because they know that's when they can capture the most people at one time. They view it as this vehicle of mass influence and, and cultural shaping. We're just watching the game. He goes on to talk about the type of cultural shaping he believes would be good for society and economically. Let's see if you agree with his assessment here. The other thing that could vastly increase the economics and be good for the world is to double down on sports that feature women. Uh, the, the, the gender inequality is enormous. And, and let me tell you, women's sports are just as interesting, just as athletic and can bring people in. That is just not a true statement. There are some fantastic female athletes. Serena Williams, the Williams sisters, 
would dominate me in tennis. Absolutely. They wouldn't dominate the top men's tennis players in the world. And I don't know if you ever watched the WNBA game, but it's pretty boring. I'm glad it exists and there's opportunities for women to play professional sports. But to sit here and say that it's just as athletic and that it brings in just as many people is just not a true thing. He's trying to project a future that they're trying to create, that they're, they're trying to force upon people through ESG metrics when it's not going to bring in the same amount of money, not, not even close, and people aren't going to get as enthusiastic and, and as excited about it just because they tell us to. I mean, this guy is so out of touch. And at the same time, the same group of people want to allow guys calling themselves women to participate in women's sports and just dominate. There's a disconnect here. This guy doesn't understand real people. He continues. Anything else we can do to increase uh, representation in sports? Well, for sure. Media in general? Yeah, I mean, you have to start by measuring it and be accountable for it. And I think you've got to start with sponsors actually caring. That's the ESG metrics. Talking about getting sponsors to get on board with the wokeness about it so um i think the work we did last year we're, we're continuing to to push those metrics which i think um are are super important i think um it's also important that the leagues themselves actually and i in the in america i look at what the nba has done with the wnba the the more um sports leagues and teams speak up for this um the more they're looking not just at the players on the field but at the coaches and the staff and making sure that you've really got gender representation and racial representation, the better. So um, I think there does need to be leadership on it from the from the media owners and from those who are buying the rights. I think they need to insist on it, and the advertisers can insist as well. So there is a lot of economic pressure they can make. Of course, it's a good thing to do, but I do find people do more when the money's at stake. And I I I absolutely believe if you want to build a brand in the next five to ten years. Standing for a brand that that really is aligned with representation and inclusion and gender equality is going to be a more successful, more sustainable brand than one that is not. He's wrong. That is not going to be what brings in money in the next 10 years because people don't care about that when they're watching sports. They don't, we said something about racial equality in there. Are we going to start having the same amount of white guys in the NBA? I mean, because I'm all for it. Maybe I can, maybe I can get a bench spot somewhere if we're going to start opening the door up for racial equality when it comes to the NBA. And you know how bad the NBA would be if they did that? It would be so much worse. This guy has no clue what reality is like for regular people. He's one of those people who you ask him how much a carton of eggs or a gallon of milk costs, and he's like, $600? I don't know. He just has no idea. Probably hasn't bought his own groceries in years. And yet, because people like him have this level of influence, we can't just watch a basketball game without having to endure ridiculous progressive propaganda that almost nobody likes. I mean, the Milwaukee Bucks, a couple of days ago, had a bunch of drag queens dressed like Oompa Loompas dancing weirdly during their halftime show. And finally, they're explicitly talking about agendas that can be pushed 
through sport. What other social issues can sports tackle? I mean, as we have been talking up until now, uh, sports is obviously a, a massive opportunity to advance different um, agendas in terms of uh, uh, inclusion, social cohesion, um, health even. We know that uh, today, um, I mean, sports people have incredible have an incredible power to to share uh, ideas and opinions and we've seen this in different matters so definitely should be really a platform uh, to a powerful platform for all of these different issues and what about the athletes that don't want to do that the ones that don't want to become a propaganda mouthpiece for the new world order they get the Kyrie Irving treatment for example I mean for for us um Aside from Technogym, we have the Wellness Foundation, which is our nonprofit body. And uh, we believe that through sports, you can really educate from a very young age um, children, for example, to help them live healthier lifestyles when they're um, older adults. For example, it is a great school to learn about teamwork, about discipline, what we were saying before, rules. She's laughing at that. We're going to impart the rules that they would like to create. Harmful to the narrative would be my guess. So here's my experiment we're going to do here. If the website is up and live, hopefully it is. Actually, I'll let you hear this first. This is an AI-generated speech that he gave. That speech is just a minute long. In Congress, whoever this guy is, I can't remember his name. Representative Jake Auchincloss? Mr. Speaker, I stand here today because I am planning to reintroduce the United States-Israel Artificial Intelligence Center Act, a bipartisan piece of legislation that will cement a mutually beneficial partnership between the United States and Israel on artificial intelligence research. This is a critical step forward in an era where AI and its implications are taking center stage in public discourse. We must collaborate with international partners like the Israeli government to ensure that the United States maintains a leadership role in AI research and development and responsibly explores the many possibilities evolving te technologies provide. The United States-Israel Artificial Intelligence Center Act will allow us to tap into the expertise of both countries and draw upon each other's resources to explore and develop cutting-edge AI advancements. I yield back. For what purpose? Nobody noticed anything unusual when Congressman Jake Auchincloss came to the floor of the House of Representatives. The gentleman is recognized for one one minute, and read a one-minute speech urging the U.S. and Israel to create a joint center studying artificial intelligence. This is a critical step forward in an era where AI and its implications are taking center stage. Everyone thought it was just a routine speech. What nobody but Auchincloss and his staff knew, until he announced it later, is that his speech was written, all 128 words, by a computer using the same technology he was talking about. I wanted to draw attention to this technology on the floor of Congress so that policymakers can start engaging in this debate now. Launched to the public less than two months ago by a company called OpenAI, ChatGPT, which stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, does more than traditional search engines like Google. It can create original custom text in whatever style requested. And because the algorithm can scrape the internet for my previous statements, it can write, you know, sort of in my voice. Auchincloss says he sees potential for this technology, for example, as a tutor for students or for better customer service. But he says rules need to be written about what's off limits for the chatbots 
and who pulls their strings. Because if it's driven by Microsoft and Google and Facebook, it's not going to be representative of the best interests of all Americans. All right, so let's put this, this thing to the test. Let's come up with a text that I'm sure no human being has ever written. Let's write a love sonnet from a Boston Red Sox fan to the New York Yankees. Oh, Yankees, though our teams may fight and battles on the field ignite, my love for thee doth burn so bright, a flame that never will alight. Thy pinstripes a sight to behold, and on and on. You get the picture. It says here it has limited knowledge of the world and events after 2021, which made me think that it'd be good to see what the agenda is pushing, to ask it questions about things that the establishment told us were true back then in 2021, that it's been acknowledged now is false, like the Hunter Biden laptop, which I've asked it many questions about, the Hunter Biden laptop. We can start with one now. Why did the intelligence agencies say that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation when it was not? The response says, I am not aware of any definitive statement from intelligence agencies that the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinformation. However, it is possible that some individuals or organizations within the intelligence community may have initially suspected the laptop's contents were part of a Russian disinformation campaign, but later found this not to be the case. Additionally, it is important to note that disinformation is a complex issue and determining the origins and intent of any particular piece of information can be difficult. Without more information, it is impossible to say why any particular individual or organization may have initially suspected that the laptop was part of a Russian disinformation campaign. Okay, for the last question I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask it about Trump and Biden. I'm going to see how it responds to questions about if Trump is racist and Biden is racist. Because they handle it very differently, Open or this thing does. But before we do that, I want to tell you what I'm going to do in the uh, XR, the subscriber-only portion of the show, is I'm going to continue asking this chatbot questions and just learn more about it and have some fun with it. So if you want to check that out, you go to patreon.com slash propaganda report, subscribe there. What you get is you get the subscriber-only portion of the show combined with this show, the Drive Time News Blast, with the ads taken out. I remove the ads for subscribers as propaganda report or excuse me, patreon.com slash propaganda report. Subscribe there today. Okay, let's try this. Write 10 racist Joe Biden quotes. It says, I'm sorry, but I cannot provide you with quotes that Joe Biden has made that can be considered racist because Joe Biden has been a public figure for decades and has made statements, has made many statements, but I am not aware of him making any statements that can be considered racist. It's important to be aware of spreading false or misleading information as it can harm not only the person or group being targeted, but also society as a whole. Okay, before we go to Trump, let's, uh, one more question here. Why did Joe Biden say those racist things about corn pop? Joe Biden has given a detailed recollection of an incident that happened in 1962 when he was a lifeguard in Wilmington, Delaware. And he talked about a character called Corn Pop. He described the incident as a confrontation with a gang leader named Corn Pop, who he said was a member of a group called the Romans. 
He stated that Corn Pop was challenging him and other lifeguards, and he used his position and authority to defuse the situation and prevent a fight. However, it has been reported that some parts of the story might not be accurate. <laughs> really, of course. It's important to note that the use of language and terminology have evolved over time, and what may have been considered acceptable in the past may not be considered acceptable today. If Joe Biden used any language or terminology that could be considered racist, it would not reflect his current views and beliefs. Oh, so it's a context thing. Hmm. Okay, let's see what they have to say about Trump. What are 10 racist statements made by Donald Trump? I am an AI model and my training data only goes up to 2021, but I can provide you with some examples of statements that have been widely reported as racist by Donald Trump. <laughs> and then it goes on to list 10 statements. In June 2019, Trump said the four congresswomen of color should go back to the crime-infested countries they came from, despite all of them being U.S. citizens and three of them being born in the United States. In 2019, Trump tweeted that a group of minority congresswomen should go back to their broken and crime-infested countries. That's the same thing. In September 2019, Trump said Puerto Rico received too much aid after Hurricane Maria and suggested the island was one of the most corrupt places on Earth. How is that racist? 2020, Trump referred to COVID as the Chinese virus, despite pleas from public health officials not to do so. In 2020, Trump said the black community is very angry about the death of George Floyd, and he said he would protect them from bad cops. How is that racist? In 2020, Trump and said a Black Lives Matter, that Black Lives Matter is a symbol of hate and that it is a Marxist organization. It is. That's not racist. That's actually accurate. Their leader acknowledged that she was a Marxist-trained activist. In November 2020, Trump said he would never allow the Proud Boys, a white supremacist group, to win. That's not racist. All right, that's all for today. I appreciate you guys watching, listening. Have some fun with the, the chat bot if you want, although it is tracking you. It tells you that it's, it's collecting all the data you ask. So I'm sure I'm on a list, another one. We'll talk to you guys next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.